Well, once again, let me add my word of welcome. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning at Calvary, whether you're a member or regular attender or visiting someone in town. We're just glad that you're here. My name's Adam. I serve as pastor. And um, as you leave today, um, on the table immediately to your right, we have, uh, we have something that we'd love for you to take. We have Bibles, and more than anything, we want you to know um, the love, the redemptive love of God through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. And also, we want you to be able to take home a copy of God's Word. So if you don't have a Bible, but you'd be willing to take that and read it, we'd love for you to take one of those on your way out. Well, this morning, we are going to be continuing our study in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And um, I don't know how your week went, but I hope it went really well. Maybe you're like me and you woke up this morning and you thought, what is the most elastic, comfortable pair of pants that I own? And you went for those. We're glad that you did. We want you to be comfortable. Um, Every year, one too many pieces of pecan pie, uh, one too many pieces of pumpkin pie. But it was a wonderful time with my family. I hope that you had a wonderful time with family or friends. More than anything, I hope that you're full this morning with just a sense of God's love for us in Christ Jesus. And um, if you didn't have a great week, and if it was a hard week, we just want you to know that we're really thankful that you're here, and, um, and we love you, and we love you with the love of God. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, follow along with me as I read, and then I'll pray for us. Paul writes, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would give me the grace to teach faithfully and accurately your word, your unchanging, inspired, inerrant word. And also, Lord, that you'd give us the grace to hear and to believe. And Lord, that the faith that you give us through the proclamation of the gospel would be a rock upon which we can build our lives that it would be, Lord, to us a steady ground for our feet. Lord, I pray for those that we love, that we maybe saw over the holidays, that we know are far from you, and they weigh heavily on our hearts. Lord, right now, individually, in the quiet of our own hearts, we lift them up to you. We ask, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself. We ask, Lord, that you would remind them of the truth they've learned. And God, we also pray that you would give us a renewed desire to live out our faith, to proclaim our faith, to remember that we are ambassadors for Jesus. 
And God, not only us here at Calvary, but for the other churches here in the valley that are preaching the word, we pray that you would strengthen those pastors. We pray that you would guard them from the enemy who wishes to divide. We pray, Lord, that you would unite us around doctrine, the unchanging truth of your word, the faith once delivered to the saints for all time. God, we also pray this morning asking that you'd strengthen our missionaries who are overseas during the holidays. It's tough. But God, you're with them, and you can strengthen them, and you can remind them of your calling over their life, and you can cause their work to bear fruit. So we pray for our missionaries. And God, we are living in troubled times, and we pray, Lord, for many things in this church, and we've prayed that you would bring about the release of those that were taken captive in Israel, and we pray, God, that you would continue to bring about their release, but we thank you for those who have been released. And we pray, God, that you would work in the hearts of people who are not inclined to you, but Lord, you're a sovereign God, and you do as you wish, your word tells us. So we pray, Lord, for the unfolding of your will in ways that would be merciful and gracious to those who are captive. God, this morning I pray that that theme of freedom would find its way into our lives, that you would set us free from sin, that you would set us free from addiction, that you would set us free from worry and anxiety, Lord, wherever our feet are prone to slip, whatever the ensnaring sins are that we struggle with, God, would you fix our eyes on Jesus, our glorious Lord and Savior, who is risen from the dead, who right now reigns over all creation, and who will one day come again for us. Lord, would we turn from our sin and look to Jesus and be saved and be reminded that this morning, if we are in Christ, you have forgotten our sins and you've cast them as far as the east is from the west. So counsel us, Holy Spirit. Strengthen our minds and our hearts by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we study through the book of 2 Timothy, last week we saw that we are living in a period known as the last days. The last days. And if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says times of difficulty will come. So we're living in a time called the last days, and Paul says if you're living in times of the last days, then times of difficulty will come upon you. And the difficulty that we experience stems from desires that are not rightly placed on Christ, but upon what Paul calls the love of the flesh or the love of pleasure and the love of money and the love of self. And so last week we saw that people love the wrong things. And so we're in a society diseased and disordered by wrong loves. And so Paul calls us to love rightly, to love Christ lightly, and to have the right kind of love. And if you look at our passage today, hopefully you keep your Bibles open. In verse 10, Paul turns his attention to Timothy. And he starts by saying, you, however. So Paul is charging Timothy, and he's charging us, because we are believers like Timothy, as to how we're to live faithfully in an unfaithful world. How we're to love Christ in a world filled with wrong love. And how we're to settle our lives on the stability of Scripture 
in a world that is increasingly unstable, economically unstable, geopolitically unstable. Turn on the news. We live in an unstable world. So Paul is saying in an unstable world, here's how you can have stability for your soul. And the first thing we see in our passage is the massive impact of Christian living. The massive impact of Christian living. When you're living in a world that's unstable and unsettled, and maybe you in your soul are unstable and unsettling, the question is, where can I find stability? Where can I find a ground underneath my feet? Where is something set and firm in our ever-shifting world and culture? And so Paul says, you need to understand the massive impact of Christian living. Look at verses 10 and 11. Our passage opens with these words, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Here Paul is commenting on the example of his life. You caught the repetition of that word, my teaching, my faith, my life, my steadfastness, my persecutions. Paul's Christian life has had a massive impact on this young man, Timothy. Paul says, in fact, you have followed my example. I wonder this morning whose example you're following. I wonder this morning what example your setting. They say that more is caught than taught. We've all experienced that. Maybe you're like me, you can hear something taught over and over again, but until you see it, you really don't get it. And Paul is saying Timothy got it because he saw it. And the it that he saw was the faith lived out. God has designed us to learn by example. If you study Western thought, this goes all the way back to Aristotle and Aquinas. We learn by watching. And so Timothy has watched Paul and he's learned from Paul's teaching and also from Paul's example. As my own pastor often says, we produce ourselves. The impact of your life is your life is having an impact on others the question is what example are you setting and you might think well i'm not setting a very good example but you got to understand i have a difficult life pastor my life is hard you don't know the troubles i've seen but it wasn't all roses for paul he mentions his persecution and his suffering. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? At Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. You can read about all of these events in Acts 13 and 14. Let me just recount a little bit of what happens. In Antioch, Paul, Paul goes to an established church, and at, at Antioch, he faces reviling anger among those he's sharing the gospel with. So in Antioch, he preaches the gospel, and people lash out at him for that. That's bad. But then he goes uh, to Iconium, and at Iconium, he preaches the gospel, and they try to kill him. 
That's even worse. And then in, and he goes on to Lystra, and at Lystra they do stone Paul. They actually drag him outside the city, and they stone him, and they think he's dead. But if you read in Acts 14, he sits up, and we don't know exactly what happened there, but Paul is stoned and left for dead. The Lord rescued him. And that rescuing from that momentary physical trial was a picture of the greater rescue that we will all experience when we enter into glory and are made in the presence of Christ, like Christ, and we receive resurrected bodies. And so Paul says, they did all these things to me, and yet I kept preaching the gospel. Paul kept going, and his commitment and his determination and his refusal to quit made a massive impact on young Timothy. And all of this leads Paul to make a promise in our passage. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I wonder if you've ever been encouraged to claim the promises of God. And I hope you have, and I hope you do. The gospel is the promise that sinners who look to Jesus and trust in his death and resurrection for their salvation will be saved. We're saved by faith alone. And the Bible is filled with promises. Paul says in Romans, God is for us. The Bible says he will finish the good work he has started in you. Jesus says, I will lose none of those that the Father has given me. The Bible is filled with promises, and it's good for us to know those promises and to remind ourselves of those promises and to hold on to those promises in times of persecution. Yet somehow, this promise that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, this is not one of those promises claimed by Christians. Nobody's walking around with a mug with this verse written on it. I shouldn't say no one. Maybe someone somewhere. But it's no wonder. Because often those claiming promises want to turn God into a genie who just exists to grant us our wishes. Or into a Santa Claus-like character who, if we're good boys and girls with just the right faith, will wake up one morning to find our lives filled with all the things that are on our wish list. But God isn't a genie, and God isn't Santa Claus. God is real, God is sovereign, and God is God. We should count his promises, and he will keep them all in time. But many of the promises the Bible promises are specifically promised in the life to come and not in this life. And so if you're not careful, this whole business of promise claiming and promise keeping really becomes more about me than about Jesus. In this life, Paul says, we will endure times of difficulty. And if we follow Jesus, we will face persecution. Now it's important to understand this word persecution just means to be hunted down. Trouble will find us. Following Jesus doesn't mean you won't have trouble. Paul is reminding us that Christians live a life that is shaped like a cross. The gospel-centered life, the Jesus-centered life, is a cross-shaped life. And Paul is saying if you want to follow Jesus, you will face persecution. 
Now, why will we face persecution? Well, look at verse 13. It's right there in our text. We'll face persecution because there are evil people. And our world wants to nuance this and explain it away, but there is real evil. There is real evil in the world. There is real evil in us. There is an evil foe that the Bible sort of pictures as a a roaming lion seeking to devour named the devil. These are real things that we try in our modern life to pretend like they don't exist, but they do. So in our culture, which is all about loving self and loving pleasure and loving money, loving Jesus above all of that puts you at odds with others. It puts you at odds with culture. It puts you at odds with society. Now as Christians, we don't set out to be at odds. We set out to live at peace. But Paul is just saying following Jesus won't make you cool and it won't make you popular. But here we have a choice. Now, don't miss this. Notice that Paul says, either we follow the example of godliness and set an example of godliness, or we will give ourselves to what's bad and go from bad to worse. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. Evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, what we want to think is that we can sort of nicely control our sin intake. We'll just have a taste. But like that first piece of pumpkin pie, it's just a gateway to a lot more. And Paul is saying when you, when you, when you tempt yourself, when you give yourself over to a little bit of sin, as the old saying goes, sin will take you further than you wanted to go and keep you longer than you wish to stay just goes from bad to worse. And this is a great reason not to ever give yourself over to that which is bad in the first place. Our goal as Christians isn't to get as close to the edge of the cliff as we can and tempt fate. Our goal as Christians is to flee temptation, to turn away from those things which we know are tempting to us. And some of those things are similar and some of those things are different, but we're all doing the same things as Christians. We're waking up, deciding to follow Jesus, and turning away from those wrong loves. Paul says false teachers. He talks about false teachers who peddle false promises, and they even start to believe their own lie. This is a picture of false teachers who actually believe what they're teaching, even though maybe at one time they knew it was wrong. Paul uses the word imposter. Originally, this referred to sorcerers, but it refers to anyone who is shamelessly cheating others by pretending to have supernatural power. A lot of that going on, don't you think? I mean, you almost can't turn on the television without some preacher making promises. If you only give the right amount of money, they pretend to heal, they pretend to lengthen legs. They pretend to have new revelations. They pretend to be apostles. They even call themselves apostles. But Paul says this is evil, and they are deceivers, and they are fakes. And what he wants for you, because he loves you, Paul wants us as Christians not to be fooled, not to buy into their self-deception. Just because someone else is self-deceived, 
doesn't mean that we have to enter into their delusion. So Paul says, don't enter into their delusion. Expose it in Scripture for the lie that it is. Don't don't follow their pattern of deceit. Don't follow the world's patterns of wrong loves. Follow the pattern of Christian living that is set according to Scripture. Uh, This is a challenge for us as moms and dads and as grandparents and as friends And the challenge is to understand that when we simply live our lives in obedience to Jesus, we're making a massive impact. If you will just live your life in obedience to Jesus, you will make a massive impact. Now, it might take years to realize, or you may never realize it, but God does His work, His sovereign providential work through our little lives of obedience, our conduct, our faith, our patience, all these things that Paul mentions, our love, our steadfastness, even our persecution, even our suffering. If you will be persecuted, if you will suffer, if you will endure the hardships you have to endure in obedience to Jesus, Paul is saying you'll make a massive impact you can't even calculate. I'll tell a personal story. I was finishing up my PhD in philosophy in Texas, and I was teaching a philosophy class at a little state school called Tarleton State University in a little town in the middle of nowhere called Stephenville, Texas. And most of my students were more interested in rodeo and trucks and horses than anything having to do with philosophy. And I remember many nights driving home thinking, that was a waste of time. And I was not permitted to share the gospel, but I am a Christian, and I was teaching philosophy, so I found ways to sort of slip it in there a little bit. And years later, I think it was about 12 years later, I was at a conference in Southern California in line for a food truck to get a taco. And the guy behind me said, are you Adam Groza? And I said, yes. And he said, I was in your class at Stephenville University. And I just sat with a sort of shocked look on my face. And he said, you talked about arguments for the existence of God one time. And you didn't come out and say you were a Christian, but I could tell you were. He said, and that started me on a process of investigating Christianity that led to my becoming a Christian. And I'm really here at this conference because of that class. Now, I can take no credit for that. There's no way I could have planned that. That is a power beyond my power, but that's how it goes with God. If you'll just live your life in simple obedience, you will make a massive impact. And so the challenge for us is to live our lives in obedience to Christ, no matter your hardships, no matter your circumstances, to just resolve that I am going to follow Jesus and trust that God in his sovereignty will use you to make a massive impact. So the second thing we see is that as Christians desire to follow Jesus in these last days, they must continue. This is fairly simple, but it's profound. Paul is saying, don't give up. Continue. Paul says to Timothy, look at verse 14. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. So in other words, Paul is saying, chart a course and don't waver. Fix your eyes on Jesus and don't turn to the right or to 
the left. Now you may wonder, well, if I'm living for Jesus and I'm not being persecuted or I'm not suffering, what's wrong? And Paul's answer to that is keep going. Just continue. If you will just continue to live your life for Jesus in your school and in your workplace and in your family and just wake up every morning resolved because Christ has saved me by his blood, I'm going to live my life in obedience to him today. God will use you and you'll begin to see him at work. There's a popular trend nowadays where somebody shows a picture It's on the internet, you've all seen it, where it says how it started and how it's going. Have you seen this? Well, I wonder this morning how it's going for you. Christians love to talk about how it started. Oh, back when I was in sixth grade, you know, I went to a camp and I had this amazing experience. That's how it started. Paul says, how's it going? Are you continuing in what you've learned and firmly believed? Or have you stumbled? Perhaps you're here this morning and you've wandered. Maybe even you find yourself this morning going from bad to worse. Well, I don't bring this up to shame you. I bring this up because Paul warns us that this happens. Matter of fact, you don't have to turn there, but back in chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says that Phagelus and Homogenes turned away in Asia. They turned away. They started well. But then they gave up. They stopped following Jesus and they went back to old patterns of sin and wrong loves and they went back to the things they know are wrong and cannot fulfill. That's a constant temptation. Listen, I don't care if you've been following Jesus for 30, 40 years. You can never think that those things that tempted you can't tempt you again. You can never think that you can get a little closer to the cliff, but you won't go off the edge. Paul is saying it's not about how you started, it's about how you're doing. And so Paul says to Timothy, continue, continue. And if you have wandered, and if you have turned back, and if to borrow an allusion from the prodigal son, if you find yourself this morning in the pig pen and filth of sin, Paul says repent, repent, turn back to what you know is true. Timothy, Paul alludes to, learn from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. You can read about this in chapter 1. And then he learned from Paul. He had the benefit of massive impact of Christian teaching and godly examples. And so Paul says, go back to that. Go back to what you learned from your grandmother. Go back to what you learned from your mother. If you find yourself in the pig pen and filth of sin, going from bad to worse, you're not... Stuck there, you can repent, you can turn back, you can go back. And what is that beautiful picture of the father running to the prodigal son to meet him, to receive him, kill the fatted calf? What does Jesus says? All of heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. So Paul points Timothy and us to Scripture. He says in verse 15, knowing from whom you learned it, what you from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writing which is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says the key to continuing is scripture. He calls it sacred writing. The key to continuing is found in God's word. Paul uses this word acquainted 
to Timothy. And the key to remaining faithful against our sin and against temptation, the world, the flesh, the devil, as Martin Luther says, is knowing and understanding and applying Scripture. Turns out you have in your lap what you need to continue in the faith. You think you need everything to change, but you don't. Paul says you need this book. So Paul points us to Scripture. I don't know if you ever saw the movie Shawshank Redemption, but Andy Dufresne is the protagonist, and he finds himself wrongly accused. And some of your nods, I can tell you're familiar with this movie. And he ends up in a prison with a particularly evil warden. And the, the warden gives him uh, a Bible in one of the scenes. And, you know, he's not a good guy, but he hands him a Bible and he says to Andy Dufresne, salvation lies within. And Andy Dufresne lives in that prison for years, acquiring a little shovel. And he digs his way out of the prison wall and into the sewer and out into freedom down to Zihuatanejo, Mexico. And when the warden finds out that he's gone, he's in his office and the sirens are coming because the warden's the bad guy. And he opens up the Bible where there's been carved out a hole for that digging device. And Andy Dufresne has written on the side, Warden, you were right. Salvation lies within. Well, our problem is greater than physical prison or just unjust wardens. We are guilty. And sin has rendered us dead and rightly under the just condemnation of a holy God. But because Jesus bears our sin, we are forgiven. The, the good news is not a ladder we climb. It's a gift we receive. But freedom is found in understanding and living according to Scripture. Like Andy in the movie claws his way through the prison wall, scrape by scrape, year after year, freedom is found in your Bible. It's found in reading and applying God's Word to your life and your struggles and your temptations and your wandering and your anxieties and your fears. But here's the deal. It doesn't happen overnight. The Bible calls the process by which we are conformed to Christ sanctification. And let me say it this way. Sanctification is a slow motion miracle. You don't commit your life to Jesus and wake up the next day and go, all of my temptations have gone away. That can happen. But usually it doesn't. Usually it's the slow scraping sound of applying God's word to our life year after year that burrows the tunnel to freedom. It does happen, but it takes time. What Paul's saying is scripture is the key. Scripture not only brings us salvation, look at verse 15. Scripture brings us salvation, it also brings us sanctification. It makes us more like Jesus over the course of our lifetime. If we will read it, if we will study it, if we will apply it, it does you no good collecting dust on the shelf. You must read it. Dads read it. Moms read it. Grandparents read it. Friends can read it. You must align your life with the truth. Now Paul refers to the sacred writings, and you might be here this morning and you might be a skeptic. You might think, well, why not the Quran? 
Why not the Book of Mormon? Why not the Hindu Vedas? Why not the Bhagavad Gita? Or one of the many other sacred books that other religions propose to be true. Well, look at verse 16. Paul tells us why we should believe Scripture. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, breathed out by God in the English is a bit wordy. But in the Greek, it's just one word, theanoustos, God-breathed. Paul says Scripture is God-breathed. The Scriptures from beginning to end, all 66 books, every word, every sentence, every chapter is true. It is unchanging. It is divinely inspired. The Bible says it's settled in the heavens. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You see, the Bible, unlike the Quran, unlike the Book of Mormon, unlike the Hindu Vedas or the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible is written by men, but it's God's word. God himself is the source. God himself is the origin. That's what it means to be sacred. That's what it means to be divinely inspired. And you might think, well, that's just what you believe. But it's not just about what we believe. It's reasonable to believe in the divine inspiration of a book which over hundreds of times anticipates the future in ways that no human can anticipate. Mere men could not prophesy events hundreds of years before they happen. And this is why Peter, who saw Jesus in his earthly ministry and saw him crucified and resurrected, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men alone cannot explain, explain the fulfilled prophecies of Scripture. Only an all-knowing God can do that. So the Bible does not invite us just to, like LeVar Burton in The Reading Rainbow, don't take my word for it. The Bible invites us to ask our questions and to, and to ask hard questions about how do I know this is the word of God? And the answer is that no other book in human history written by dozens of men over 1,500 years has this cohesion and this prophecy culminating in an empirically demonstrable miracle in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who appears to hundreds of people. He came on a rescue mission, and his rescue mission testifies to the veracity of all that God has said. It's not just that we believe Scripture. It's that Scripture is the Word of God. Paul says the effect of its origin, that it comes from God, in verse 16, makes it profitable. Profitable. Maybe you're a businessman and your ears have pricked up. Profitability is good. Profitability is what we want. Paul says God's word, when understood and applied, is profitable. Well, profitable for what? Verse 15, salvation. That's the most important thing. But it doesn't stop there. That's how we start. How do we continue? Verse 16, God's word is profitable in that it teaches us. And I don't, know, I don't care how old you are, we've all got something to learn. God's word's also profitable because it corrects us. It convicts us of sin. That word reproof means to be convicted of sin. You might be engaged in activity and you're like, I don't feel particularly bad about it. Read God's word. 
and God's word shines a spotlight. It's like the, it's like the story of the old farmer that his wife calls out, honey, come in for dinner and wash your hands. And out in the dark, in the setting sun, he looks at his hands and thinks, I'm pretty clean. And then he walks into the house where there's light and he realizes in the light just how filthy his hands are. So Paul says the word of God enables us to see our sin and that's good. It's not fun, but it's good. Because when we see our sin, we can confess our sin. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, he is what? Faithful and just to what? Forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What can God's word do in your life? It can do everything. Paul says that it equips us for every good work. God's word is powerful. In Genesis, God creates by his word. The word incarnate, Jesus Christ, fulfills God's rescue mission. Death, as we sang, death cannot hold him. And then Jesus ascends to heaven, but he leaves us with his written word. And what can God's word do in your life? The answer is anything God wants it to do. Every good work. This doesn't mean that God's word is magic fairy dust that we sprinkle over our life and all of our problems go away and our bank account fills. It's not that kind of thing. But in you, as you are conformed to the image of Christ, God's word can do anything. God's word can bring forgiveness where there's bitterness. God's word can bring peace where there's anxiety. God's word can bring holiness where there's sin. God's word can bring self-control where you're out of control. Maybe you've forgotten this morning the power of God's word. The reasons Paul says continue in the word is because that he knows that nothing God desires to do, his word cannot accomplish. And this is tremendous hope because Satan wants you to think, I'm stuck, I'll never change, I'm doomed. I'll always occupy this small cell of imprisonment to sin. But Paul says if you continue in the word, you'll be freed from bad to worse and from the entanglements of sin. Now contrast that. That's hope. That there's a way out of the cell. There is a path to freedom through the, through the word of God. Contrast that with popular thinking that says we can't change that says our lives and our actions are determined by our genetics or our upbringing, that we will always and only ever be what we are. There is no hope to that. There is no freedom, and there is no human dignity. God's word, in contrast, Paul says to Timothy, changes us. God's word changes us. It completes us. It equips us for every good work. This is hopeful, but it also takes away our excuses. God's word is a treasure. The psalmist knew this. This is why in Psalm 119, 105, the psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And you know who else knew this? Jesus knew this. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, how did he respond to Satan? He says, As it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. These are the words that come out of the mouth of God. You want to hear from God? You want to hear God speak? Read this book. It's a treasure. It will change you. Every word is life. Every word is light. 
and it will make a massive impact in your life, and then it will make, allow you to make a massive impact on other people, and it will allow you to continue, not just start, but to continue following Jesus, having right loves in a world with disordered affections. It is a treasure. So our job is to treasure it. You treasure it when you read it. You treasure it when you apply it. You treasure it when you allow it to diagnose your spiritual condition. You treasure when you encourage with it, when you counsel with it, when you correct with it. We at Calvary want to be a church that treasures the word of God. So to that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the ways that it is shaping us. God, we need to pause and just confess that there's a lot in us that's been shaped by sinful desires, by our own ego, by our own pride, by our own arrogance. And Father, we've all experienced the hurt of that path. We've all experienced the shame of that path. We've all experienced the regret of those actions. But God, this morning, cause the light of Christ to shine into the lives of people. Allow the hope of your word to allow them to see that beyond the walls of their cell, your word really does bring freedom. It really does change us. And God, give us the grace to live lives to impact others. Give us the grace to continue well. And even, Lord, I would ask to finish well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.